This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Would you join me in a word of prayer at this time? Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We worship you alone. For you alone are worthy of all adoration or praise that we could ever bring. I ask now as we look to your word that you would speak to us through your spirit. That this word would sit heavy on our hearts and our minds. That through it we would see you. We would see your glory. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll be continuing our sermon series through the book of Nehemiah that we started all the way back in January. Nehemiah chapter 9. Now where we left off last week in chapter 8 was that the people of Jerusalem are gathered together listening to the word of God being read out. And as a result of that, they have rededicated themselves to the Lord and are even starting to celebrate some of the festivals and feasts, such as the Feast of Booths. And where we pick it up in chapter 9, they will still be listening to the word of God being read out. Now, the, the main feature of Nehemiah that's remembered is the building of the wall. But when you look at the book of Nehemiah, it's about much more than just building a wall. The wall itself, the project and construction, really only takes up five of the 13 chapters in Nehemiah. And so this book that we have, though it features a construction project, has much more to say to us. And one of the things that we learn through the book of Nehemiah is how God relates to his people. This is something we see in every book of the Bible. But in each book, we see just different aspects of how God relates to his people. And in Nehemiah, what we see is a God relating to his people who were exiled, but have now been brought back to their land. So where we pick this up in Nehemiah chapter 9, the people have been feasting and celebrating. The wall is completed. The temple's been restored And now they can worship God and hear his word proclaimed once again, like they were supposed to in Jerusalem all along. And as I was reading this chapter this week, I couldn't help but think about how we read God's word. When you read chapters 8 and 9 of Nehemiah, you see such a joyous and a sincere response to the word of God being read. These are people who have come from exile back to a land that was desolated. These are people who have constructed a wall in the face of great opposition, all because of a belief that it was God's will that they rebuild a wall. And this is a people that now gets to celebrate the fruits of their labor by hearing the law read out once again. And when it's read out, they listen intently. They worship wholeheartedly. And as we'll see today, they confess earnestly. And so as I was reading chapters 8 and 9, I just couldn't help but think, is this how I approach the Word of God? 
It's very easy when you first encounter the Bible to have a similar response to the people of Jerusalem. To have an earnestness and an honesty in wanting to hear every single word and obey all that God has said. But, but as time carries on, it can become easier to get used to what the Bible says, to think that you understand it pretty well, and that you're pretty good at obeying what's written in it. And I think what we see from chapter 9 is that we must always remain honest of two things. One, we must always remain honest about how great and mighty and awesome God is. But we must also remain honest about who we are in comparison. So if you have your Bible open to Nehemiah chapter 9, I'll read these verses for us, starting in verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chananiah. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodai, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. The people of Israel are assembled together. And we see in chapter 9 a shift in their tone. Chapter 8, there was rejoicing. There was feasting. There was celebration because the wall is completed. The city has begun being rebuilt. And now the word of God can be read out to the people. But in chapter 9, we see immediately that now the tone shifts to that of mourning. They're together with sackcloth and ashes in great distress. And there's three things happening in this chapter that I, that I want us to pay attention to. First, the word of God is being read. This is the same thing that was happening in chapter 8. Secondly, we see that in response to the word of God being read, sins are being confessed. And thirdly, we see that as sins are being confessed, God is being worshipped. See, the reason that Israel has moved from the rejoicing and feasting of chapter 8 to the mourning and sackcloth of chapter 9 is because they've continued to read God's word. And with each new sentence that they're discovering, they have a clearer picture of two things. God's righteousness and their wickedness. But then what happens is that in the midst of those two realities, of God's holiness and perfect nature and their own depravity and rebellion, they now have an occasion to see God's mercy and grace. So they're moved to worship. 
So three things happening in chapter 9. The word of God being read, sins being confessed, and God being worshipped. As the Levites are reading the law of God, they begin to cry out and to pray on behalf of the people. And this is a prayer of corporate confession. This is their response from reading what God's word had said, what started in chapter 8 and has resulted in a renewed commitment to God, has resulted in the Feast of Booths being celebrated once again, now results in confession. Because once again, the people of Israel have read their history and their story, and they've been reminded of who they are and who God is. Look at how this prayer begins, verse 6. The Levites say, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll realize that this prayer, in many ways, just retells the story that we find in the first few books of the Bible, starting all the way in Genesis 1 with the creation, and then just walks through the story of Israel up to this point that we see in the Bible. And so they start in verse 6 and at the start of their prayer with where the Bible starts, where their Old Testament law would have started, Genesis 1, the creation. And the first thing the Levites do is acknowledge that the God they worship, the God of Israel, is in fact the one true God who has made all things. And they remind themselves that the God, this Yahweh that they are worshiping in Jerusalem at this time is not just one of many gods. He's not just the God of this particular area or this particular people, but rather he is the one true God who alone has spoken all things into existence. And they remind themselves of what they should have known just from reading the first few words of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A starting point for understanding who God is is to see that he is entirely different and separate from everything else in creation because he stands above creation. He is the creator who has made all things. Brothers and sisters, in a time like this, this is the exact sort of truth that we need to remind ourselves of daily. That we worship a God who existed eternally into the past and at some point by his good will brought everything that we know into creation simply through the power of his word. But even more than that, as the Levites acknowledge here, he preserves everything. As Paul would say later in Colossians, he holds everything together. We worship a God who has not only made all things, but we worship a God who is continually holding it all together under his power and authority. And it's at times of trouble that we can begin to question that. Just a few weeks ago, I sat down for lunch with a friend. And we were just talking through the story of the Bible. And 
we agreed that one of the hardest questions to answer when you're reading through the Bible is what to do with the problem of evil. It's a problem that's tripped up many people throughout the centuries, and it's a problem that's puzzled many Christians just as long. Because if God truly is the creator of all things, if he has power and authority over everything, if he knows everything, then why does evil exist? In our present time, we can ask if God is sovereign over all things and is intimately concerned with keeping creation together. Why does he allow viruses to exist? Why does he allow wars to continue? Why does he allow strife to go on? This problem of evil, something that is close to the hearts of every human being because we have all suffered and we have all ourselves committed evil. And so why would a God who is so good and so in control, who knows everything, allow it to continue? And it's in times of distress and strife that we can start to doubt. Maybe, maybe he's not completely in control. Or maybe, maybe he doesn't have power over everything. Or, or maybe there's just some things that because, you know, he's looking out over all of creation, there's just some things that he hasn't quite given attention to yet. But the Levites, in their prayer, remind us here that the God we worship truly is the creator of all things. He truly does preserve it. And as to the question of evil, unfortunately, we will not always have a satisfactory answer. But as we'll see throughout this passage, even things that we don't always understand God has a way of working out for good. When Job had lost everything and his life laid in ruins, his friends gathered around and tried to give several different explanations of why bad things were happening to him. But at the end of the day, as the Lord answered Job, one of his main challenges to Job is, where were you when I laid out the foundation of this world? Where were you when I decided the design and the lifespan of every single snowflake that will ever fall over the surface of this earth? Where were you when I decided what all the creatures would be in this world and where they would go and where they would live? Where were you when I set all of this into place? Brothers and sisters, it is not wrong to question what God is doing in the midst of evil, but we must always remember that he does stand as the creator, fully in control of all things. And even in times when we cannot understand what he is doing, we sometimes must simply rest in the knowledge that his ways are higher than our own. And we can draw comfort from seeing how he has worked in the past to take even the most evil and wicked things and turn them for good and know that he will continue to do that until all things are made right and until evil is put to rest once for all. So the Levites begin their prayer just by 
reminding themselves, first and foremost, the God we worship is the God who created heaven and earth. And then they just begin to walk through the story of Israel. Like I said, if you've you've read the Old Testament, the story will be familiar to you. And they remind the people of Israel that, that at one time, there was just one person who belonged to this nation, and it was their forefather, Abram, and how God called Abram out to a different land. And he told Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'll give you a land, and the whole world will be blessed through you. And he changed his name. And then that people that descended from Abraham eventually went into Egypt where they were caught as slaves, but God delivered them out against one of the most powerful political forces at the time, God ushered his people out of Egypt towards the land that he had promised them. But even before they entered into the land, the Levites remind the people of Israel that they wandered, that as they were in the wilderness, they began to become disobedient to God. And so he allowed them to wander for 40 years without taking possession of a land that was promised to them. But even in that wandering, he didn't destroy them. Look at verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt even just after coming out of Egypt, after being delivered by God's power, God's people turned their backs and said, God, we don't understand what you're doing. Let's find a different leader that can take us back to the slavery we were once in. Surely it's better. But even in that face of that rebellion, they say, verse 17, but you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Levites, remind the people of Israel, even after we came out of Egypt, even after God delivered us powerfully, our first instinct was to turn and run away from him, to question his goodness, to question his provision. And in the face of that rebellion, God did not simply leave them to die off in the wilderness, caught between Egypt and the land of Canaan. Instead, he patiently stayed with them for 40 years, sustained them in the wilderness so that he could bring them into the land he had promised to Abraham. As they continue this prayer of confession, the Levites remind the people of Israel how they did, in fact, enter the land that was promised to them. But then even upon entering it, having victory, being given everything that God had promised them, the people once again turned away. Look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. 
and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But then look verse 28. How do the people respond? But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. As the people of Israel are reading the word of God, they're encountering their story. They're encountering the sins of their fathers and acknowledging that they are also the sins of themselves. Time and time again, God has preserved his people. God has carried them out of distress and into his grace. And time and time again, his people have responded by turning away, by running to something else, and trying to find anything else to worship other than him. But the people are reminded that God always responds with mercy. God always responds with a steadfast love that is not shaken by their disbelief. And so the word of God is being read out to the people of Israel. And they're confessing their sins because they have seen their own wickedness in contrast to God's righteousness and his goodness. And finally, the Levites end their prayer with a plea. They recount the entire story of Israel. They remind the people of all the rebellions. They remind the people of all the times that God has saved them, that God has demonstrated mercy and patience. But as they sit there in Jerusalem, that even though it has walls and even though it has a temple that's somewhat restored, it's still a city that's largely desolated, sitting in a land that is almost forsaken. And the people, even in their moment of triumph, of, of bringing Jerusalem back to life, realize that this land is forsaken because of their own disobedience and that nothing they have done has earned any sort of favor. So they end their prayer of confession with this plea. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the king of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Verse 33 stands at the heart of their prayer of confession, an acknowledgement of who God is and who they are. God, you have dealt faithfully with us, and we have acted wickedly. This isn't just a problem of people that came before us. 
But this is also the problem that we have now, that, that as you continue to act faithfully toward us, we continue to act wickedly toward you. And so they, they come before God and say, we need your mercy. We need your grace once again because we have continued to act wickedly as has been our pattern all throughout the ages. So they come before God with confession and distress because after reading his word, they have seen such a clear picture of righteousness and seen their own depravity. At the beginning of this sermon, I asked, is this how we read our Bibles? What I meant by that is, is do we see our Bibles telling this story of a holy and righteous God who has dealt with a wicked and rebellious people? And furthermore, do we understand our place in that story? That the people of Israel are, are not just some wicked, rebellious people that we can learn from so we can do the opposite thing, but rather we are right there along with them and with every other human being, responding to God's goodness with evil responding to God's grace with rebellion and responding to God's mercy with stubbornness. When we read the Bible, is that what we see? It can become easy to go to our Bible for encouragement, which we should and, and which is the right thing to do, but it can become easy to go to our Bible for encouragement and treat it just like a vending machine where we just need a little nugget of encouragement, just a little pick-me-up. And so we open up our Bible and we go to the Psalms or, or we go to some place in the New Testament where we read about having victory or we read about how God will stay close to us and then we close our Bible and, and we feel peace knowing that everything will be okay. And again, it's not wrong to go to the Bible for encouragement, but we must go to the entirety of the Scriptures. We must understand the whole picture that the Bible paints for us. Because brothers and sisters, when we do, we will more fully see the goodness of salvation. When we more fully understand God's holiness, when we more clearly see his righteousness and understand our wickedness in contrast to that righteousness, then the salvation that Jesus Christ brought on the cross will be all that much more sweet. And so when we reduce our Bible to just simply encouragement vending machines, we lose out on a beautiful painting that God has been putting together from the beginning of history to show his glory, to show his goodness, and to show a salvation that at once was unimaginable for us, but now is accessible to anyone who would call upon Christ as Savior. As we read Nehemiah chapter 9, we see that an honest reading of our scriptures should lead us to confession. But like the people of Israel, as we stand and kneel in a posture of confession, 
we won't be able to help but see God's mercy, the salvation that he offers, and it will move us to worshiping God all the more. God's righteousness shows us our unrighteousness. And our unrighteousness gives us an occasion to see God's mercy. And God's mercy brings about God's salvation for any who would believe so that we can praise and glorify him. So that's my question for you today. Have you read your scripture in this way? Have you read your scripture long enough to see a God who is righteous and mighty, who does stand above all things and knows all things? Have you read scripture honestly enough to see your sin in the midst of that creation? Have you read scripture often enough to see God's mercy, to see how he deals with sinners, to see how he deals with you in your sin? And have you read scripture intently enough to rejoice in his Savior? The people in Jerusalem sitting with Nehemiah in confession have seen God's saviors come throughout history, but they're only hoping in a future Savior who can once for all save God's people. Brothers and sisters, that's who we see in Jesus Christ, the Savior who has come once for all so that it can break the cycle so that all of the punishment that belongs to us can rest on him, and in exchange we can receive his innocence. In the weeks and months ahead, read your scripture in earnest to see a holy God who has dealt mercifully with a wicked people, so that together we can worship and rejoice in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are slow to anger, that your love is steadfast. We ask that you would give us eyes to see the full picture of your righteousness and our undeserving wickedness. Keep this fresh on our minds and deep into our hearts that we might lean into the Savior you have given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.